This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here is my co-host, who is always ready to assess the risks, Yon. Good morning, Dave. So one <laughs> risk assessment done. <laughs> what, you, you, you were looking at the risk of the fact that whether it was good or whether it was morning, or both? Um, mostly the Dave part, to be honest. I mean, I only see this avatar. Yeah, this could be a deep fake. I mean, I don't know you are who you are. You're in a different part of the world. It's this whole Corona thing. Maybe I'm living in a virtual simulation and nobody's real but me. And maybe not even. Well, me. let's let's just hope no one unplugs you before the end of the recording, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So we're continuing our open source uh, focused a set of topics and we're going to start off with a an article or a topic as old as well really as old as anything open source uh, versus proprietary has been or open source versus closed source uh, and that is is open source more secure than closed source oh, god do we really have to talk about this still is this really is this really a thing? I know it really is, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Should we should we just plow through this one more time? <laughs> yes. I, I mean, feel like I've been having the same discussion or conversation for nearly twenty years. So uh, well, apologies if, if this feels a little bit. Um, well, yeah. I mean, we can we can do two things here. We can first of all uh, give an answer to the question. And then maybe look at if if our answer to this question has changed over the last 10 years. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to make the topic interesting. Work with me here. We're a okay. team. I'm trying. I'm trying. All right. So. You first on me first. Well, like, I mean, let's 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 answer the the very first the the topic of this. Uh, or title, I guess, of this article, is open source more secure than closed source? I would actually say no. Yeah, no. It, it's not by default, just exactly. because something is open source, it is not automatically more secure than closed source. Now, now if the title had been, can open source be more secure than closed source? Uh, indeed like is it possible yes it is absolutely possible for many reasons that we will probably start touching on going forward but it is absolutely possible and there are things that happen in the open source world that are unique to the fact that something is open source that can mean it is potentially more secure how many kind of clarifying or caveated words did I use there? A lot. Um, yeah, so, I think, yeah. I think a better statement would be that you can be more aware of the security status of a project if it's open source. Mm. Because the code in the open, you can see who is committing, how many commits happen, how many different parties are looking at it, how recent is their last patch update, what's in the patch notes. Because the development in the open for the, the true open source, the open code, and all of the other open-ish ways of development project 
it gives more insight where a closed source project by very definition it's closed you do not get access except from security audits done by uh, the Deloitte's of this world, I guess, and how much you trust those people, I leave it up to you. But there's definitely a middleman in between. So the visibility of potential security issues is more present in open source. Or at least the potential of that visibility <laughs> is more present. Because the reality is the last time that, you know, most people or organizations went and read the entire source code of something that we're about to deploy and then deployed it is what do very you do few at, and at far night? between what do you I do know, at night I know. Come on. I, i'm not reading kernel diffs that's for sure um it, it's the opportunity is there but that doesn't mean that everyone will take up that opportunity it's a it's like the the freedoms of open source are there. That doesn't mean you have to, to exercise all of those freedoms or even some of those freedoms. Yeah. You could exercise none of those freedoms. Yeah, but is that the point? But they are there. Exactly. Because they are there and somebody might, there is an and inherent... And some people do. And some people do. There is an inherent motivation for the yeah. open source project members to try and do their best. Yeah. And there will be vulnerabilities... People write bugs. I mean, people are buggy, we write bugs. That's how the thing yep. works. But at least they have that added incentive where in a closed source environment, um, well, this is a bit of code and it might guess it could be better, but we need that deadline and nobody's going to notice anyway. There is uh, a different culture. Is it a culture thing? Could be. I th yeah, I think there's an element of culture to it. But I, I think it's more about the fact that uh, you know, from speaking to many developers over the over the years, there's a certain element of lots of people will see what I write. Mm -hmm. I'd better do a good job, and where I don't do a good job, I feel slightly ashamed, and I want to fix it as soon as I practically can. <laughs> and this actually recently happened because I just remember now there was an article I read about a university in the U.S. I'm not going to name the university, there's no need to name and shame here, but one of their researchers, whatever he was, uh, committed patches that he knew were bogus to verify if it was uh, being ca caught by the uh, project. And uh, the result, this was actually for the Linux kernel, so not just a little mm. project there. The result here is that that university's patches are all now being denied in future and retroactively being removed from the whole thing. This is clearly not some kind of, the kind of visibility this person or this university wants to have. So it actually does work. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And so the, the article sort of talks about transparency that I think we've, we've covered. It also talks about encouraging community input, which, you know, if you want to learn about more about open source communities, um, I would say go and listen to our previous episode. <laughs> we talked oh, a lot about, about communities and, and how important they are and how they can impact things. And then the, the next one that they bring up is around faster security updates. And again, I've been having this conversation for over 20 years. I, I understand the... Um, the sort of sentiment, if you like, behind this. But let's be realistic here. 
just because code is open sourced, that doesn't automatically mean that you will get faster security updates. What it does mean, like if, if a closed source company finds an update, there is no reason why they could not make that change, publish that update every bit as quickly as a, an open source project could. Like developers work roughly the same speed <laughs> uh, if they're working on a closed source product or project even as if they're as those that are working on open source projects there is no appreciable difference there where there is a difference is that and i think you know what this article is gets a little bit closer towards in the in the text of it is it's talking about the fact that if you discover or if you become aware of a security vulnerability you know before maybe the developer who maybe wrote that code um, is able to patch that out, you can go in, make that tweak, make that change if you have the skills and the knowledge to be able to do so, you know, rebuild the project or, you know, do whatever it is need, needs to be redeployed and away you go. So it is possible, again, for you to have faster security updates, assuming that you have the forewarning that there is a vulnerability and you have the skills and knowledge to be able to make the changes needed to fix that vulnerability and then redeploy that that code or project or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I do want to suggest a second potential way that this could be fast, because you're focusing on the creating of the patch, the, the finding vulnerability, the creating of the patch. Mm. The last step there is getting access to that patch. If it's a closed source thing, you might have to wait for the next release of that software package before that vulnerability gets become available to you, or it might actually be behind a paywall. You need a new, you want a new version with a, with a fix? Please pay X amount of dollars. In open source, once the patch is on the on the repository, be it GitHub or somewhere else, it's there and you can just get it as fast as you want. Now it's going to depend on your mm -hmm. own infrastructure, your people, if you have that apparatus in place to take something from GitHub and deploy it in your environment, but at least the access to the patch security uh, remediation is presently available at the moment of release, let's say, even before that, because even while it's being, still being reviewed and peer reviewed and stuff like that, you might already grab it and use it at that point at your own risk, of course. Indeed, indeed. So I think we've I think we've covered that one last time. I'm sure, it won't be the last time. Yeah, just come back to my question. Uh, in the last ten years, uh, I mean, you answered the question now. Is it more secure? With a kind of firm no. <laughs> uh, has that changed? Would you have a, a even firmer no ten years ago, or a less firmer no, or even maybe a yes ten years ago? Um, okay, so I would say. I would say my answer hasn't really changed in all of that time. I I spent a, a lot of time in the security, pen testing, uh, infosec space quite some time ago, working with both closed source and open source, and I have a you know a decent understanding of what makes something secure at the sort of fundamental levels. 
and the whether something is open source or not is not really something for all the reasons that we've talked about really influences that yeah the only the only thing that i would say is perhaps in my very very early and maybe less mature and less uh, well rounded understanding of this situation would i have been potentially championing well of course open source is more secure you can see the code um but that's that's just part of the story that's there's not a because you can see the code something is automatically more secure so yeah. i think for the most part my answer stayed pretty consistent yeah but i think that that fanaticism that you kind of demonstrated there uh, it has had an effect on it because i think and i may be totally wrong but i think that in the olden days open source was still so special and a much smaller community that uh, self-criticism peer criticism was more prevalent while today everybody and his dog does open source and puts stuff on github and it's a lot less you really have to today look at an open source project see where the commit is coming from to get that idea from uh security in the olden days when open source was still new and there were only a handful of projects out there those were committed people that were paying a lot of money on their phone bills to have a, a modem with a very low baud rate push that code up to some kind of bulletin board okay i'm exaggerating here but there was a lot more <laughs> effort involved to do it so the people that were doing it were more can i say serious about the whole thing so i would suggest that maybe it was safer than than today but the reverse of that of course is that today because it's so easy to do it becomes a lot easier to do things like pen testing security testing of your code and that does that offset the earlier advantage or not i don't know i i don't think so i, I think the only thing that's really changed is that for the most part open source has become more widely accepted uh, we'll get onto some statistics a little bit later that I will go, go and poke some holes in. But um, the for the most part, most people understand open source is almost everywhere in in the majority of organisations in some way, shape, or form. And so, this frankly slightly dumb question. Uh, it's probably slightly insulting, but this this question is being asked, thankfully, less and less by the majority of of organizations but it still comes up a lot it's 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 being asked less than it was 20 years ago for sure i mean before going back into the early days of open source this would be one of the number one things that you know that the fud of the yeah closed source vendor would be throwing out and you'd be having to really aggressively justify you know the security of open source yeah because the most biggest... of the time go ahead nowadays that's just that's not a thing like proprietary vendors are not really attacking open source in that way in the majority of cases and most consumers understand that uh you know the the details that we've already just run through yeah i think for a commercial entity to just keep spreading the fur about open source is not secure actually if you do that you kind of lose credibility in the eyes of your users yep. and and, and uh, potential customers because you still have that old mindset. I'm not sure if I want to use your product at that point, because if you use that, need to use that kind of argumentation to make me buy your thing, hmm, what's wrong here? Indeed, indeed. So moving on from uh, 
from sort of the secure is open source secure side of things. I mentioned that we, we would talk a little bit about risk and this is kind of interesting. So this is a, an article which is talking about apparently the five key questions you should ask um, when you're deploying some sort of open source project, open source cl cloud native project. Um, and I, it's not so much that I, I really kind of disagree with the article per se, but I think the majority of certainly enterprises that are consuming open source, I would say very few of them are going through this kind of, this kind of stepped process. And the majority of them are engaging with a vendor of some kind that provides them a contract with certain legal terms and warrants and guarantees and all sorts of other legalese in them that protects that company when it consumes that service or solution that is based on an open source technology. So these steps to me are more if you are going to go and consume an open source project as it is without engaging with a vendor, then all of these steps are very important. But they're also steps that I don't really see many organizations taking for the most part. Yeah, most organizations that consume open source they want to outsource that responsibility to a vendor because that's easier. The moment that you start contributing to those projects, it gets a more complicated environment and okay, you need to do steps yourselves anyway, so that vendor becomes less important. But for the pure consumers, which agreed, is a majority of uh, open source deployments these days. Consumers, yeah, having the, the vendor take over the responsibility for that definitely makes sense. It's not a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, this is this is clearly focused around um, CNCF related, you know, projects. There's there's an uh, you know you can you can see it woven throughout the uh, the the article here and there, but it just I don't really yeah I don't really see too much of this happening in the real world. Yeah, again, differentiation between the consumers and the, the contributors. I mean, why would you care about this? You're just consuming it and have a vendor in between. I mean, you don't care who the contributors are. You have to have a trust relationship with that vendor at that point and yeah. agree that that vendor has done his due diligence and is there to safeguard you against these things. Yeah. So I think the, the, the only one that I do see happening is probably the last one. So we'll just... To, to reel off a bunch of, of headings. You know, the first one is, what do you know about the contributors? The second one is, who's in control? It's kind um, of the same the thing, third, to be honest. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the third one is, is the governance documentation clear? The fourth one is, does the project have a charter and what's in it? The fifth one, though, what is the community's culture? That is the only one that I see people doing regardless it's not the sort of thing that lawyers or contracts or those sorts of things can 
really protect against in my mind. Mm -hmm. If you've got a, an open source project with like a, a very toxic culture that's maybe, or a, an unstable culture that is, you know, ran, ran, randomly or rapidly changing and throwing out new features and making breaking changes on a regular basis. To me, you know, that's a little bit of that community's culture. If they're always moving fast and breaking things, you know, maybe that's not something that you want to, you know, bring in and, and be sort of reliable, um, you know, part of your reliable enterprise and, and have to rely on something that is potentially going to cause you more headaches than, um, you know, than not involving that. So that's the, that's the one piece and it's not, it doesn't sort of cleanly fit into the definition they use here, but that's the one thing that I can see organizations do on a regular basis, even if they're engaging with a vendor, if you know, the vendor's not going to, um, the vendor's going to have a part of this, but if the fundamental underlying community, which hopefully will involve the vendor, but if that underlying community is always breaking things, making, you know, breaking changes to a project, then, or has a, a couple of toxic members of that community or something like that, those are the kinds of things that typically drive organizations to decide that they will not engage with that particular project and or then vendor as well. Yeah, but you see, for me, the, the toxic community will have a toxic vendor because a, a non-toxic vendor isn't going to be working with a, no, with a toxic environment. Yeah. So I think I don't think the, the, the people are going to look at the community's culture. Again, those consumers, they'll choose a vendor that has a culture that they like, which could be a sales, the part of the sales system, part of the support system, or basically just the way they do things and depend upon the culture of the vendor to kind of group, gobble up or have an effect or a, an indication of the culture of the underlying projects themselves. And if those projects have deficiencies, then they'll kind of expect the vendor, which has the proper culture, to fix those problems, uh, things that could be better. So I still don't think that people are actually look at our communities because that, that it's a very hard thing to do. Communities are a very living thing, dynamic thing, can change from week to week, from day to day even. The vendor is there to have, to have that stability, that uh, dependency, the next five years we can do business, this is how you work, this is how we mm -hmm. work. So I still think it's gonna be up to the, the vendor part. And for the non-consumers, yeah. but the contributor part, well, if you're part of that toxic community, apparently you like that community or you wouldn't be part of it. So non-issue. Eh, not, not always. <laughs> I've seen a bit of both, but anyway. Not going to stay then. Yeah. Well, you know, people, people do weird things that um, I'm not going to go down that path. I've just, I've, I've seen some weird stuff, but moving Food on. For another episode. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's, that's for a, uh, that's for a Patreon only Come episode. On, Twitter anyway. action here. We want to see Dave's weird stuff. Come on. <laughs> so the the final kind of point on this set of uh, open source um, episodes, at least for now, is this kind of interesting article around seven reasons to get serious about your open source strategy and uh, why you apparently shouldn't leave your developers to figure it out themselves. 
Oh. Now, it, it's quite a quite a lengthy article, but it it really focuses around the these seven reasons, um, and it, it's this is talking about open source um, as something that you, as an organization, you know, want to get involved in. So maybe this is, you know. The example um, from previous episode where you as an organization decide you want to release something you've done as an open source project. Um, it could also be um, legitimizing or approving that your employees can contribute to existing open source projects. And, you know, that's that's another element of this. But you know, famously, um, certain organizations are well known for it being next to impossible for their employees to contribute to open source, for example. You know, if, if they want to um, contribute source code, they have to go through endless uh, kind of legal reviews in order to actually get source code released from the company because that company is well known for being very protective of its IP and its patents and and you know those kinds of things, and so this this is really designed. This sort of article is really talking about those kinds of issues. How you can, you know, change your company's strategy so it is more open source friendly in in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I mean, do you want to go through the seven uh, topics here, or I, th I don't know that I want to go through all of them, but. I think it's important to maybe touch on maybe two or three of them. Mm -hmm. So the one of the ones that you actually brought up uh, on our previous episode is the second one, which is they list it here as it improves the company's reputation for both marketing and recruiting purposes. You know, if you've got people at your organization contributing to a popular, like well-known project that's used by and loved by lots of people and that person you know is a generally speaking it's a bit of a meritocracy so the the better you 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 know the more you contribute the better your contributions are the more importantly you are seen within a particular project you know that can be a real draw people want to work at an organization that's doing such amazing interesting important work uh definitely seeing that you know, many times within um, you know my career, having seen kind of projects that get interest and get um, get focus, and like those individuals become you know a bit of a legend within that particular space, and people, you know, oh, I, I read all the I've I've sort of had uh, sat in on interviews with certain people, and they've they've been talking about oh I've read all of the blog posts by this person i've been following their conference talks and you know they get really excited about these sort of personalities in these these kind of spaces yeah and the second aspect i think i mean yes you're right about the self uh profiling making on branding that's definitely one part but the second part also is that, that it kind of indicates the culture of the company if they have a lot of open source interaction, it's typically going to be an yep. open company. And if that's something that appeals to you because you don't want to have that 
closed wall syndrome. And you just mentioned the, pay, the patents earlier there. If you don't want to work for a patent troll, well, no patent troll out there is an open source company. I'm pretty safe that I can say that. So it also gives you that kind of broader cultural insight into the company if that company has a strong open source footprint or reputation out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to you do you want to pick one? Which no, which ahead. one kind of jumps out to you? Um, well, the one that jumps out in a negative way here, and to be honest, I haven't read this. I have not read this article completely because it's one that Dave mm. brought up very close to the start of the podcast recording, so I haven't gone through these. Uh, but number six, there, open source licenses generally come with legal protections. Um, I would kind of debate that uh, open source licenses come with legal consequences, definitely. But if they actually give you protections, I don't see how that would be how that would happen. Uh, we are not lawyers. Please consult your legal team. Is all I'm going to say to that. <laughs> Fair enough. That, that kind of means that so, Dave's agreeing with me that it's a weird one. <laughs> it, it is. It's a weird one to put in this. I would. I mean, yeah. I suppose the article is coming from a help your company define and you will need to get legally involved Definitely. to make sure that it you know they understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it and make sure that you're not exposing your organization in any particular way but we are definitely not the people to to sort of uh, to answer for that yeah, because if so, I scroll down, actually they rephrase it a little bit to uh da, 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 let's see where is it uh, no, here it's less risky than legal departments think. Yeah, and this so that <laughs> yeah that that's a that's a better heading. But sense. the the one the other one that I I will I want to call out is teams pick up tips from more technologically advanced companies, and this is one of the things that I I think is absolutely true. You know, if you're working on a a well established project. Um, or even a you know a new project with a, a a people a group of people that are at the absolute top of their game you know they're really you know legends in this particular space and you know there's a lot that you can learn from not just the code uh, that's there's definitely I'm sure there's elements of that that people learn from but everything from the way that people interact the way that people make decisions. The way that people, you know, maybe document things, or the way that, um, you know, the projects or the code evolve. Like you can really learn a lot from a a sort of um, fast moving and well run project more than yes, I'm sure you can run and learn coding tips. But there's a lot of um, stuff that you can learn from uh, an open source project. Yeah, I was, I was kind of thinking first we're going to talk about the uh, tactics and strategies of better code, basically how to approach a certain part of coding, because these open source projects, not always, but typically are quite complex uh, animals yeah. and having yeah. things there. But yes, it's also val uh, valid for the more broader organizational, call it logistical part of the whole, having a complex distributed team. I mean, in this whole, in this world of uh, remote working and distributed companies, yeah, having a, a open source, a big open source company as a, maybe not template, but a guideline on how you can structure your governance, your uh, team structure, innovation strategies, incentivization, because it's very hard to incentivize somebody who's working on open source projects because you basically never meet them. So how do you keep them in the loop? How do you keep them 
inactive and enthusiastic about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you often hear these terrible, terrible statements like, oh, we're the, I don't know, pick something, something unicorn, something <laughs> industry vertical. So we're the Uber of um, oh, light bulbs or we're the Netflix of um, tree surgeons or I don't know, just, just the, the, the number of um, chances that you can kind of actually work with some of these people though by contributing and following an open source project is very real like the the you know whether it's you know, uber or uh, netflix or you know many of these other organizations are active um sort of proponents of open source software actual contributors to open source software and you know if you're interested in learning from those people and how they you know how they manage to 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 do these things it's a really good way of yeah. um of actually you know developing that knowledge yeah definitely i mean but, things like peer review if you're in an open source thing and yeah. you submit something it will get peer reviewed by people that don't know you so they will be honest yeah absolutely <laughs> if you don't become a better coder through open source you're doing something wrong yeah, but one of the things I, I mentioned earlier that I was going to pull up some some stats here, like and poke some holes in them. Like there is a um, under the title "Influencing Critical Projects Should Be Part of Company Goals," which is not one that we talked about. It says more than ninety percent of the code in enterprise software is open source, and I'm sorry, I don't actually believe that is true and um, it is linked it is linked to a uh how github secures open source software and that is actually that's talking about um code on github mm. now code on github does not equal code run in the enterprise i'm sorry i don't uh, i I like to poke holes in things, uh, and this is one of those holes I'm going to stick my fist right through, because that's that's a very misleading comment, in my opinion. Yes, well, I think maybe what the person means is, I mean, <laughs> BusyBox is perceived as being open source, even though it's not, it's not really. You need to have at least contribute back to it. So yeah, it is open source. And BusyBox is on every single server switch, uh, edge router, gateway you have in your company. That's a big part of, of your code running at that moment. So I guess if you just calculate all the BusyBoxes together, that's already a big part of 90%. Oh, dear. Well, unless you have anything else. <laughs> no, I think I devalued our podcast enough by now. Oh, is it my turn to do the outro? It My is God. indeed see, your see turn how to serious the I take this stuff. We have a nice template that we can read for this, because otherwise we forget half the stuff. And basically what Dave is intentioning here, this is all we have for today. You can support the podcast if you want to, because at this point, even I would kind of have serious doubts about that. We can still support us <laughs> by coming at Patreon. Every contribution does help us maintain this podcast. If you're on YouTube, you can like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, comment, and all that YouTube stuff. 
you can go to www.roaringalpha.org. There's a link there to the Patreon page, uh, to the YouTube uh, page as well, more information about podcast. You can follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag, and you can still send your feedback by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is um, Insecurity Makes Life Interesting. Yo. And my name is Non-Toxic Dave. <laughs> Whatever. We look forward to talking to you again next week because this week is not happening anymore. Okay. See you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>